Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I've made a rookie error of getting involved in somebody else's war, but I know that from the outside, this can actually be quite interesting and entertaining. At the beginning of October, the Sunday Times ran as its main comment section lead an edited version of a speech former banker Colin Coleman had made at an investment seminar the Per had co-sponsored. Essentially, Coleman's argument was that we have a growth problem in SA, not a debt problem. All elegantly argued, and to mere mortals like myself, very interesting. The following week, however, in the same position as the Coleman piece, the paper ran off the fierce rebuttal by a well-established economist, Tabi Lee and on the same day in its business section, a possibly even stronger one from Isaiah Mklanga, the chief economist at fund manager Alexander Forbes. Both essentially argued the same point, that Coleman was not being serious, was seeking attention, that his solution to our crisis was the worst of all things, it was populist. I read them both, and being naturally conservative, I thought, yes, these are good points. You can't print more money to grow when your debt servicing costs already outpace your growth in GDP. If you pay a grant of 800 rand a month to our gigantic army of unemployed, how much will taxes have to rise to pay it? What effect will a tax increase have on spending? Anyway, just when you thought the battlefield had cleared, the Sunday Times returned the following week with another charge, almost an entire page from Colin Coleman, and this time he brought the cavalry. Nouriel Rabini, the guy who famously predicted the 2007 financial crisis, and Pramal Dawan, who's MD of Emerging Markets at PIMCO, which is a very big uh, American fund manager. Essentially, the second Coleman article put more meat on the bones of the first and it argued unequivocally for stimulus. Quote, the broad government deficit continues to be large, says Darwin in the piece, 8% of GDP, which is largely driven by the yawning interest bill. In a vicious cycle, fears about the fiscal outlook, partially driven by the interest bill, keeps the yield on long-term SA treasuries at elevated levels. Uh, Just put in English, that means that for people like Darwin who buy our bonds, that we use to to raise debt, high yields are the price we pay of him buying low-value debt, a comment on on our ability to repay what we borrow. The higher the yield to the buyer, the more interest we have to pay. Austerity alone, says Darwin, will be insufficient to fix this spiral. Fortunately, I have Colin Coleman on the podcast today. Welcome, Colin. That word austerity is a bit strong, surely. You hear the left accusing the government of running an austerity budget or austerity policies, but no one's free healthcare or free education or 350 rand COVID support payment or child benefit or old age pension has been withdrawn and the government budgets for a deficit. How is this austerity? Well, uh, Peter, thanks very much for having me on uh, on your program. And um, let me just say, right at the start. I think, um, you know, economics uh, and economists uh, serve people. And it's useful to just take a step back, if you don't mind. And before we get into the technocratic side of the economic debate, uh, just to paint the picture of what our problem is, because uh, we um, have a very significant, I would say, crisis in South Africa uh, that is growing. We have a crisis of growth uh, where 
effectively our growth over the last decade has been below our population growth rate. In other words, people are getting poorer on, on average. Uh, we have a crisis of unemployment with effectively 12 million people out of work and 15 million people working, which is one of the highest unemployment rates in the world. We have a crisis of inequality with our Gini coefficient being amongst the highest in the world, if not the highest, at 70. And we have a crisis uh, in, in socioeconomic terms uh, that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. This, um, this crisis also sits uh, at the end of a decade in which we've had the rule of uh, Jacob Zuma as the president prior to Sarama Posa taking over and trying to turn the country around in which South Africa's institutional integrity was very largely attacked. But essentially, uh, what the Jacob Zuma project was about was, in my view, uh, essentially about a patronage system uh, where the political machinery is being used uh, by the Zuma and his supporters uh, to effectively capture economic resources such that it's distributed from the political machinery down through the party and through the state organisms right to the provincial and municipal levels, such that uh, you will then get some effective uh, economic leverage into that constituency through the process of patronage and others otherwise known as corruption. Now this process, which effectively uh, spurned a criminal political enterprise uh, in the last decade in South Africa that we still see taking effects in terms of people attacking the electricity infrastructure, the rail infrastructure, stealing copper, stealing steel, uh, and so on and so forth, you know, is effectively uh, eating at the foundations of the society. So we have a very um, deep problem, Peter, in the country, which is both a political and economic problem that we need to get under uh, the roof of. And if we don't respond with, uh, with an economic, political, social set of policies that attend to these sets of problems that I've laid out, we will not survive as a society in the form we know. And I would say, and it may be a forecast that would uh, not please your viewers, but I would say there's a high likelihood that we are heading towards another explosion in South Africa that uh, is, may not be dissimilar to the July explosion because there is such an extent of social uh, and political and economic uh, conflict in the society, I do not see it as sustainable. And for these reasons, tinkering on the, um, on the edges of our society is the last thing we need to do. We need to be bold. Uh, we need to undertake programs that really address the legitimate interests of the marginalized and the poor. Uh, and we need business, labor, civil society, and government to hold hands to keep the society on track. Now, you might say that sounds um, extreme. <laughs> you may say, you know, I'm panicking. Uh, I'm not. I think that uh, what we need to do is have our heads up, looking in the distance with our sights set on the compass where it's pointed north and target our limited resources where it's really needed. Now, what austerity means is effectively, you may say there's no austerity, 
but the reality is the public service has been held back very significantly through uh, financial uh, constraints. I believe those financial constraints uh, on the public service are necessary. I think that we need to target much more, um, uh, much more discipline at the public sector in terms of spending. But in essence, the problem is, and you would, you would see this very clearly, that are, that are highlighted in the first article we wrote, that we haven't had sufficient growth and no amount of debt um, management effectively without growth is going to solve our debt problem because we have a high debt bill, we have a high interest bill, uh, and we have very many um, contingent liabilities, particularly from ESCOM uh, on the state, which, by the way, are written up by the credit rating agencies into the sovereign rating. So they are treated as if it's debt uh, at this point in time. Uh, but no amount of managing the debt in and of itself is going to help us unless we get growth going. So the real question is, if you accept what I've just said, that we have a severe crisis, we have uh, extreme uh, forces in society which are pushing us towards the edge, that we need to have bold, uh, a bold growth plan, that we need a growth uh, engine to be started in the economy. Uh, the question is, how do we do that? And what we were doing in the second article is laying out a strategy which uh, from preeminent economists and from an institution like PIMCO, which is, by the way, the largest holder of South African government bonds outside of the PRC. So you've got to take them very, very seriously. Yeah. You know, we have to uh, try and articulate. And if you don't agree with this strategy, then articulate a different strategy for how we're going to get growth going. All right. Let me, let me stop you there for a moment. So what both Tabi Leoko um, and Isaiah Mshlanga were arguing was that basically we're not running a, a, an austerity program in South Africa. There's a lot of social spending going on. As you know, there's free education, there's free healthcare. Um, there are a lot of people on welfare. There are now a lot of people receiving this grant of 350 rand a month, and it's being constantly sort of extended, and it'll be extended, no doubt, when there's a fourth wave. But you say, and this is, the, this is the question that I want to hear your answer to, you say structural reforms to target higher rates of fixed investment include, and you go, after an effective rollout of the COVID-19 vaccination program, an aggressive marketing of SA as a tourism destination, backed by a user-friendly visa regime, Bankable infrastructure projects identified for public, for private-public partnerships, including port and rail infrastructure concessions, fast-tracked for competitive bidding, the implementation of spectrum allocation and migration to digital broadcasting, delayed for a decade now, the transformation of energy brackets renewable, agriculture, mining, automotive, electric vehicle production, and technology data centers sectors to respond to technological advances backed by attractive incentives to unlock jobs and investment and the review of industrial and labor policy to attract investment into both labor-intensive and high-tech skilled worker-absorbing production and manufacturing facilities. I mean, you're describing a country that simply doesn't exist. None of this is possible in this country. What we have, I put to you, isn't either just a debt problem or a growth problem. We've got a leadership problem. I mean, no one's in charge. None of this can happen in South Africa, Colin. Well, uh, let's take a step back. 
I think I think you and I have have both supported President Ramaphosa uh, in in our own ways in in his rise in 2017 and since. And I think it's true that he should be doing a lot more than he's doing. And I think it's true, and I've been vocal, uh, that there's a weak state uh, and a weak cabinet, and that many of us have been disappointed with the the mix uh, of skills in the government and its ability to get things done. And we need to urge, you know, that this um, this uh, mix of skills is strengthened, particularly with private sector capacity. Um, and I, I would say, Peter, one of my great um, current uh, disappointments is that the whole notion of non-racialism and meritocracy has been lost, uh, particularly in the last five years, so that we don't really hear any objection when 22 cabinet ministers and deputies are appointed in the last round, all African, a PRC board is appointed recently, all African, every single ANC mayoral candidate for the metropolitan areas, all African. Um, and we have the lowest number of non-African members of the cabinet uh, since the Mbeki era. Um, so it's it's uh, in the Mbeki era, I think the number was like 30% Indian colored white members of cabinet. And now it's down to something like just north of 10%. So it's, um, I, I think this is a real problem. We are, in other words, not mobilizing the skills of South Africa for the be benefit of South Africans at this point in time. And you and I are aligned. So when it comes to delivery and implementation of structural reforms, that you've just gone through, I agree that there is a significant question over the state's ability to implement it, which is partly also, by the way, why uh, this uh, interdependent set of uh, interventions is necessary, because what are we going to do, Peter, with 12 million unemployed, if effectively all that we're doing whilst we're implementing structural reforms uh, is promoting effectively efficiency in the state and not getting uh, people to work, not recapitalizing businesses, not be giving people further means, which is uh, whilst at the same time, and Enoch Gorongwana, the critics, economic critics that you talk about and myself will all agree about structural reforms, uh, where we differ is that I think that it's quite unlikely that the structural reforms are going to be um, implemented in the short term and therefore cannot be relied on in order to keep us our society alive. I, I disagree with you on the sort of racial makeup of the cabinet. I don't think it matters who, who does what job as long as they're able to do it properly. I mean, and if, you know, if, it, if, if uh, the president wants to appoint people of whatever color or, or race, that's his prerogative. But if they can't do their jobs, then you know, he's got to answer for, for that. And, and clearly there are some people who, um, who, who are damaging the economy in his cabinet rather than um, enhancing it. And as far, by the way, <laughs> as far as you and I are supporting Cyril, I'm sure he's as disappointed with me as I am with him um, because I'm no longer where I was five, three, four years ago. But, but you know, it, um, the leadership, the, leadership um, the absence of leadership is so acute now in South Africa that almost any discussion, as the, like the one that you tried to start, of of what to do and how to get out of it, 
is moot because nothing then you don't even get heard colin there is nothing that you can say to this government or the president that would make him sit up and listen to you i mean he might he might you know he might take your phone call he's very polite very whatever it might be but he's on his own political track um if it wasn't for the private sector in south africa still somehow managing to stand on its own two feet we would be in dreadful trouble um uh where we get to the point where we can privatize rail services or port services or um you know you talk about a user friendly visa regime i mean it's quite clear that that we need you know we need more tourists in here although covid has played a big role but not only that you can't create jobs without creating employers first there aren't any we're running out of employers you know we need a massive immigration program surely and you don't mention this um of skills to to of people who can who can train other people you know you can't learn a skill from a book or watching a video you've got to watch somebody else doing it it's complicated being a plumber or an electrician we don't we're not even close to that um and i you know the, i think the question to ask is in the face of no leadership yesterday i saw on twitter it was quite extraordinary a row of trains a long train of um wagons uh, tanker tanker wagons containing petrol stopped somewhere in kwazulu natal and people were just taking petrol out of the out of the tankers it had stopped because you know there was no electricity or whatever there was a brick on the rail i mean the, the place is absolutely chaotic and there's nobody standing up to say listen this is what's going to happen we've had the president now has had four years to change the, the chief of police uh, who has all sorts of question marks over his head and is clearly incapable of leading the police force he's done not a thing i mean how do you make policy how do you make how do you as a as a business leader suggest we survive in a leadership vacuum i think that's the question yeah well i think that um you know part of this problem if you just take a step back and look at things is that we've come out of 300 years of colonialism and apartheid we had um you know 10 years of mandela and mbeki uh that had started to turn the ship around significantly and when we go into a decade of zuma who unfortunately broke many many institutions and what i think cyril ramaphosa has managed to do in his presidency is effectively stop uh the decline and the rot and start to try and turn the ship around uh but we have this huge legacy and an i think in societies it's very difficult for a society on a long range basis to overcome its legacy problems uh without you know leadership from everyone so we have i think as business and trade unions and civil society and government a joint responsibility to um join hands to strengthen where we can every single interface and you know from this point of view um the lack of judicial uh policing prosecuting capacity is a core problem that only the state can fix uh absolutely so when you see lots of evidence not just the one you you mentioned about the petrol tanker but uh the steel being stolen uh out of uh the railway lines the copper being taken out 
the so-called sabotage of the electrical uh, substations or the utility points in ESCOM, uh, it really needs a prosecuting, policing, investigative response. And unfortunately, the president, from what I observe, had a number of Zuma supporting people in the security establishment that I think he's been too slow to remove. And as a result, his, his ability to actually deliver a security uh, service that he rely, can rely on, I think is deeply compromised. So we have these structural problems uh, in the security element, in the economy and politically that we have to deal with. From a, from a point of view of what does that mean for the economy and for business, you know, I don't think we can uh, just continue uh, driving an economy that's delivering below population growth rates in the same way. And the pandemic has caused in the world, you know, a, um, a new direction in economic management that's taking place in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in the European Union, in China. And we have to be self-reflective. You know, that was part of the purpose of what was a provocation. I, I admit it was a provocation yeah. to say, um, we don't have a debt problem, we have a growth problem. At the core of our problem is growth. That's not to say that we don't have a debt problem, full stop. It's, it's to say, unless we get growth going in the country, our debt problem will not be solved and it will eat us up. So we have to get growth moving. Now, that's in my career, uh, when I was on the board of Business Leave South Africa as a Goldman Sachs long-term executive as a banker for 25 years, uh, in my career, this has been the constant mantra of business is we need a growth strategy. And we have had a growth strategy under Tabo and Becky. And since the Zuma days, uh, we've effectively not had a growth strategy that's effective. And part of that is because of the corruption project, the state capture project. But in the absence uh, of Zuma, now with, with uh, President Ramaphosa there, we have to ask the questions, what do we need as a society to change the trajectory of the outcome? Because right now, what I see is a society heading towards an unsustainable um, uh, cul-de-sac, and that is not going to be a pretty outcome for anyone. What about what about business itself? You know, I mean, what what capacity does business have? And I know this question probably cuts across racial lines and 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 the past. And you know, we all we all know about our history. We don't need it re-explained. Um, but to what extent is business also at fault for not ever standing up? It didn't stand up to the Nats, and it's not standing up to the ANC. And I take and I don't want to get involved in too long a conversation about the policy of what is called localization but you know business um is business is brought into this protectionist um uh, vision that uh, uh, Brian Patel has at the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition he's putting up so many bar barriers to imports including things that we don't even make yet by the way uh, you 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 don't get rebates on importing them, and and he's got all the champions of business. They're all there, and he's quite right when he says, "Hang on, we agreed all of this with big business." You know, I've got the I've got the CEO of uh, Pick and Pay or, or or Pepco or whatever it might be. They're all there cheering along, you know, digging their own 
digging their own graves because that program isn't going to create any jobs. If anything, it will destroy jobs. And why doesn't, you know, where is business standing up and saying, actually, no, this is just completely ridiculous. We won't do this any longer. And we demand X and Y and Z. You know, somebody has to, somebody's got to stand up. It can't just be the odd, you know, the, it can't be the DA. Nobody's listening at the moment. But it, and it can't be journalists. It has to be people with something to, to really lose by standing up. And that's you, you know, and other business leaders. Yeah, no, I would, well, look, I would agree there needs to be a much more dynamic interface between the government and business, and business needs to be far more outspoken. Let me just say, I, I have a very strong history, which you may or may not recall, uh, of being involved at the business interface between business and politics, even in, uh, in the 1990s, because I was an executive in the consultative business movement, which was facilitating discussions. Uh, and I think the, the truth is a little bit more nuanced, that business does engage with government. Uh, and when it leans in, it certainly, in support of your point, has a, a, a pretty high success rate, actually, in making the difference. Maybe it might not be a major difference, but it's making uh, a marginal difference. And sometimes those marginal differences, as I've got to understand things as I get older, are the things that make the big difference in the long term. So I think that Business does need to lean in. I think that sometimes they, they face, as your description of Ibrahim Patel's master plans, sectoral master plans describes, they face a particular regime of understanding or a framework of understanding, and they sometimes can't go against that framework because that's the operating framework of the ruling government uh, without being destructive to their own cause. But they need to pick their spots, you know, as to what it is that they intervene behind. To their credit, I think Business for South Africa did come out with that, you know, and Becky referenced uh, plan for the economy. Uh, I, I think that to some extent it was uh, spot on. And in other respects, I think it was too weak. I think it was too weak on the social function, for example. Uh, so... Sometimes also business needs to get out of its own comfort zone. You know, the comfort zone of making profit, uh, facilitating um, uh, regulatory changes that will create jobs, all good. But it's also a question of, you know, this Danny Roderick um, article that I explained uh, in my article, which was effectively arguing that we don't just need growth, but we need a social an interface between the social policies and growth policies to get inclusive growth into the country. Because again, it goes back, Peter, to this question. If we don't get inclusive growth, then we get growth. But we have effectively a very strong, let's say half of society that supports a corrupt patronage uh, model of economic governance because they don't have the skills with which to compete in a modern economy. So people are gonna use the political sphere to use the state capture machinery to get economic resources, whereas otherwise they won't be able to compete in a modern economy. So we need to give people tools to participate and get economic benefits to a much wider range of society than has been the case already. That's where I think this, you know, when I was at NASREC in 2017 on behalf of Business Leave South Africa observing it, and you look at the 5,000 delegates that go to the ANC conference to elect their leaders, which is at the source of all of these issues that you and I are raising now. 
uh, probably one third of those people are literally unemployed. One third might be active uh, in the formal economy and one third of public servants. And those are the people that are electing the leadership that we are getting. So unless we affect you know, the broad range of people, you will get a political response to these economic realities. And you know, in a way, I don't know how you interpret the municipal election, but I think the biggest interpretation of that municipal election is a disaffection with politics as we know it today. And the fact that five and a half million people voted for the ANC in the municipal elections, whereas in national elections, 11 million people odd vote for the ANC year in and year out in the year of the national election, means that half of its base is not pitching up because it's disaffected. So there's a deep political problem in the country in terms of leadership, in terms of confidence in the political future. And yet we have all these economic growth, unemployment, inequality crises that I've spoken about, which need us to uh, really be bold in the economic sphere. Well, I think the boldness is coming from the electorate, quite honestly. It's either, as you say, staying away, or it's voting the ANC out of power, slowly but surely. You know, it's inevitable um, that power slips from one's grasp. Once you've got it, you can't keep it forever. Um, and it may just be that in the absence of leadership from the government, in the absence of leadership from business or, you know, or anybody, um, that people will, f in their own messy and, um, you know, um, way, and you've only got to look at the mess that's been made of coalition negotiations, people will rearrange politics uh, and get what they want. It might not be what they want, but I mean, but what they are clearly saying uh, is, you know, this is not good enough any longer. Um, and maybe that's what they want. You know, you talk about uh, um, growth being inclusive and how important that is, and it is inclusive. But the problem, the way the ANC approaches uh, these, these problems, especially when it's trying to be inclusive and include business and the, and the partners, you know, the social partners, is that it's still telling them what to do. It's not... It's not sitting back and saying, look, we're the government. Why don't you guys, you go into that room. We'll lock the door. We'll send in, you know, um, sandwiches and cool drink every sort of half an hour or so. But you sort it out among yourselves. And what's happening is that, that you know, is that, in fact, what the next thing will be um, uh, union representatives on the boards of companies, a la Germany. And which is not a bad idea a la Germany, but the way that that, ha the way that, that happened was by tradition and by consensus. You know, what you have here is a government telling you what you can import or not import, which is just insane. You know, what you can make or what you can't make, who you can sell it to. We're becoming a command economy. Nobody notices this. But, I mean, the only thing that's working in South Africa at the moment, the only policy being implemented uh, is localization is import protection, import substitution. It's remarkable. And it's, and you know, because there's no, there's no um, infrastructure plan. I mean, is, is there a single infrastructure project up and running out of all of, the, all of the conferences we've had and all of the money we claim to have raised? Why does the president not hire real deal makers into the infrastructure office? You know, he's got a politician running it. With the greatest respect, I mean, he doesn't know how to close a deal. And one shouldn't expect him to. That's not what he's done all his life. 
I just think that we're kind of on the slide, but in a way, I feel I felt more hopeful about South Africa after this election than I did before. Okay, because you think there's more plurality of interests and uh, political competition. That that may be true. Yeah. Um, the question is whether the government system will function at the local election more effectively or not. Uh, but in any case, I think that we would agree that governance across municipal provincial and national government at this point in time is extraordinarily weak. Uh, and what we need is we need, and business needs, uh, in order to thrive and to grow and invest and create jobs, uh, is much more effective government. You know, that I always say, Peter, the worst kind of government that I think one can have is a weak developmental state. You know, my travels for Goldman Sachs around China you know, what I saw there was a very strong, very effective developmental state that was able to take 800 million people out of poverty. Uh, and obviously, it's got its own problems. And now it's got all sorts of environmental problems about standards of water, standards of food, uh, the air quality. These are their problems. They don't have our problems. Uh, so I think the, the, the strong developmental state model is not necessarily all bad, but it's very bad when you have a weak developmental state that consumes a lot of the resources that leads the economists you talk about to be worried that we're too consumptive for good reason. I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. So we need to be much more productive. Uh, but there's no getting away from the fact that business doesn't uh, exist in isolation. Business needs government to be uh, you know, an effective umpire and referee who's going to uh, help regulate society and create conditions for investment. I think personally that President Ramaphosa very much understands this and wants uh, South Africa to be a, a productive economy that attracts investment and so on. And I, but I think that he's got a weak bench. Um, of economic managers. You just take the... All appointed by him. Correct. And one, one has to ask him, you know, why, why he's making those decisions. Uh, but if you take the whole energy space, you know, it's very clear that between Wedi Mantash, Barbara Creasy, Andre de Reiter, um, Pravin Gordon, uh, and, and the main actors on the scene of the energy policy mix, they're in very, very different places. <laughs> They all agree we have a crisis. They just have very, very different ideas about how to get through it. Uh, yeah. and, and, it's, and there's no central, clear direction that one can, uh, that one can determine. And, and Enoch would be another one, uh, the finance minister, who has a different view. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's the lack of that central direction that is just absolutely... Um, Critical. Uh, interesting that interesting side debate that came out of the oil exchange of views with uh, the other economists was whether y you you see the current economic or the current commodity cycle as being a long term one, five six years, perhaps medium term. I don't know what what is five years, Colin, to you? Is that long, is that that's medium term, medium right? Term. And they and their argument is that it's not, um, and that in fact you know they quote uh, a World Bank. Commodity price forecast showing that on average between 2022, 2025, coal, zinc, lead, tin, iron ore, silver, and gold will decline each year. Aluminium and platinum are predicted to rise by an average 1.5 and 1% a year. Hardly a commodity 
super cycle. I mean, we can't relive off that. But what is interesting, Colin, and this was this is what fascinates me so much about government policy now, where we stand. On one hand, you have Ibrahim uh, Patel trying to uh, play this game that the ANC has for years of beneficiation. We've got to make more of what we own. We can't just dig it up and and ship, put it on a ship and send it to China. And in fact, you kind of want to say, well, why not? I mean, that's what we're good at. You know, that is our place in the in the in the chain. If we want to go higher up the chain, that means we've got to replace our own customers, the people who are buying it. You know, I mean, since it's insane. We've been kept alive now by a good old-fashioned commodity boom. You know, the very thing that they claim not to want to rely on. And if it wasn't for this commodity boom, we'd be really in the dwang now. We probably wouldn't even be able, you know, to connect for this chat. I mean, it's just to put numbers to it, you know, in the medium-term budget statement, they indicated that 120 billion rand of unexpected revenues from the commodity cycle, all attributable to the mining companies, uh, had uh, been a dividend from the commodities com- commodity cycle for South Africa. Uh, and I think that's kind of probably even a conservative estimate of what the true number is, by the way. But um, this is a matter... Peter, that um, I have done a lot of investigation into. And being in banking for 27, 25 years, uh, I can tell you, you know, I know where I go for reliable information and analysis. I I have relationships. I can phone people. So when I, I go into the Goldman Sachs commodity research head and have a conversation, so can you please tell me what is your view on uh, the um, the term that we can anticipate, the number of years that we can anticipate the commodity cycle to be there. No one can wave a magic wand and tell you precisely. That is what forecasting is about. But, you know, when that person can give you um, chapter and verse on how the global economy in the United States, in China, and the European Union is refitting itself for energy, telecommunications, uh, for industry, uh, machine-led um, production manufacturing and how that whole cycle is basically refitting and reinvesting uh, the world's economy for uh, the future cl- uh, climate change needs. And that is feeding uh, a demand side on the commodity cycle, which is going to be long-term in nature. They, these people that I regard with a great degree of confidence are very confident that this is not one year or two years. Now, the point in economics, and they they think it's more like a five-year, five, ten-year cycle. The point in economics is not that you have, it's not a perfect science. I mean, and I'm not an economist, just to be clear. I'm a banker, I'm a businessman, and I've lived in markets now for 25 years. But it's not a perfect science. So what you're really doing as an economist or a finance minister or a finance person or the treasury is making a set of judgments as to what on balance, and you're modeling those judgments uh, in financial models, what in scenario planning, and you're risk weighting the probability of outcomes, what will the likely set of outcomes be? And so you can't just exclude the possibility that this is going to be a multi-year commodity cycle because then you sh- you're shutting down one of the important scenarios. You have to also model what happens if it is only a one or two year cycle. You can't bet uh, that it's going to be a 10 year cycle. 
So, uh, but the, the reality is what, what uh, Pramol um, from Dawan, from PIMCO, describes as fiscal space when he talks to me is a very important concept, which is because the commodity cycle is here and we can have judgments about the, the length of the commodity cycle, we can make judgments about what fiscal space we have and markets will make judgments about to the extent we increase our debt to GDP by the 2% to expand our social welfare by 800 Rand a month for like three or four years, they will then say, what is the impact that that will have on growth? What is the impact that will have on social stability? How does that feed the political space to make the reforms? Because you now have onboarded into the ANC and the ruling party political machinery a, a base that is kind of um, receiving this very important investment in them. Uh, what political space does that give them to then undertake other reforms of the kind that we've been talking about in infrastructure, in manufacturing and production? And as a result, uh, you start to use this fiscal space to stimulate the economy in a different direction. But conservative austerity means that you don't allow uh, exploiting this fiscal space in any uh, manner or means. Are you with me? So that, so that, uh, that fiscal space that we have, what we've tried to do with this intervention from Nouriel Rabini, uh, Pramal and myself, is try and jolt the economic policy makers to reimagine economic policy to what we can do to deal with the social problems that we have, at the same time recapitalize businesses. And both of those individual and business stimulus plans are not inconsistent with what's happened in other emerging markets and other developed markets as a consequence of the pandemic. And absolutely, we are united about the structural reforms that need to take place. And by the way, we're united that we need to have fiscal consolidation. So if, you, if, if you're agreed we're not disagreeing on the need for consolidation. What else are you, what are you not saying? Okay, so what I'm not proposing, firstly, is a wealth tax or any increase in tax income brackets or corporate or individual taxes, uh, because I believe that it's very well possible to adjust by two to 3% debt to GDP within the current fiscal framework and for the rating agencies to see that as a positive for growth. And as growth, uh, effectively kicks in to start outstripping the rise in debt. I'm not proposing a universal basic income grant. Uh, I'm rather suggesting that we simply increase the SDR from 350 Rand to 800 Rand for 12 million people. It's currently about nine and a half million people, uh, Peter. Uh, and, um, but I'm not suggesting, uh, as some are, a universal basic income grant that is a permanent feature uh, for 32 million people, a rather a targeted relief, unemployment relief grant. And then lastly, I'm not um, suggesting that the public sector wage bill should expand. I'm suggesting that there should be greater efficiency uh, and there should be greater discipline around the public sector wage bill, but particularly to get frontline workers uh, out, police, nurses, school teachers, so on, and less back office and for us to modernize the back office by a more of an online system, not just in the visa spectrum. So I think that what I'm not doing is 
you know, all things to all people, if we put it in a simple way, uh, but making the choices that uh, will target uh, expenditure in the right way. You know, you, you, you sort of do get to the point in your second piece where you are being a bit austere, in fact, because if you look at what the European Central Bank and other creditors imposed on the Greeks, that was exactly that. I mean, it was very tough on the Greek um, public sector. Uh, people, you know, they wanted the budget cut. And until it was cut, um, they, you know, there was no debt relief for Greece. Um, and that's, a hard, that's the hard part of what you, what you propose. And that's also probably the politically impossible part. It's just not part of it. It's not, it's not going to happen. You know, Cyril is not going to cut public sector wages. No way. Not with an ANC election coming up in just about a year's time and a general election 18 months after that. Colin Coleman, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for joining me. I so appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. This is the argument we should all be having, not whether Andre de Reiter should be running ESCOM or whether we should be punishing businesses for the things they import. Anyway, thank you all very much. I'll try to be back next week with an interesting guest. Bye-bye and be careful. COVID is on the way back. Get vaccinated. Mm-hmm.